Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Market Call Show. I'm Louis Giannis, and today I'm happy to have Corey Hofstein on the podcast. He's the author of Liquidity Cascades, and he's the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. He also has a podcast called Flirting with Models. Now, I want to tell you why I wanted to have Corey Hofstein on the podcast. And it goes back to a book that I wrote uh, back in 2002. It was published, The Handbook of Risk by John Wiley. And I wrote a, a, a chapter. The chapter was called Converging Correlations and Market Shocks. And I want to just read uh, about this, this one little paragraph. There's a uh, paragraph section called Common Symptoms, Symptoms of a Structural Market Shock. And what we're going to do is we're going to make this a practical thing. But I want to talk about some of the things that I had identified back, you know, a long time ago, over 20 years ago, about like how you can identify when the market is more vulnerable or the capital markets are more vulnerable to have something unexpected happen that could have a lot of risk in the markets. I'm just gonna read this list off and then this is gonna apply and we're gonna talk more with Corey Hofstein who in his article, Liquidity Cascades, he talks about kind of an updated version of some of these things. So let's start off with the general setup. It says, when a severe market shock occurs, there is usually a large supply and demand imbalance due to a lack of liquidity. Although it is very difficult to predict a market shock in advance, I have found it is useful to have a list of common symptoms found before a structural market shock occurs in history. The following are my current list. Okay, now this is back in 2002. Number one, large institutions have a large degree of concentration in a particular asset. A relatively small number of investors and institutions are exposed to a market to provide liquidity in the marketplace. The next is investors and or institutions are using large amounts of leverage compared to the capital employed to finance investment transactions. Next, certain financial transactions remain very popular even though they do not make economic sense or have very little margin of safety incorporated in their pricing. The next one is a large group of investors begin to have a homogenous tolerance for risk. So they tend to act the same in terms of their risk profile. Usually that's taken on more risk. The next one is new regulations are implemented that affect the ability of institutions to invest in a certain type of asset Another one is the marketplace develops a common expectation about the future prospects of an investment or group of investments. And the last one I have, and this is a really big important one, is monetary and or fiscal policy is changing dramatically. Now, in this book, I talked about these things back in the early 2000s. Here we are in 2023. And I'm about to bring on this guest, and we're going to talk about an updated version, talking about some of the new players. So I believe all of these concepts apply today, but I want to bring Corey on to talk a little bit more about the micro players right now and how that affects the current market environment 
and some of the things that we can do today in structuring our portfolios so that we can have better investment outcomes for clients, which in the end, that's what this is all about. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. So it's nice to, to meet you. You know, I, I, I just bumped into you on Twitter. Yeah. And yeah, a dangerous and, way to meet someone on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and I was looking at some of your work as uh, like that liquidity cascades and the concept of return stacking. I thought we would just, just talk a little bit about that. Awesome. You know, I want to tell you why I wanted to, the, to bring you on. So, and I don't know, have you ever read this book, the handbook of risk? I don't think I've read that one. So this was published back in 2000. Yep. So uh, I wrote in this book uh, years ago, and um, in chapter 11, I have this chapter called Converging Correlation and Market Shocks. And on page 198, I've got a whole list of common symptoms yeah. of when you might have what you call a liquidity cascade. And I was looking at that list, and I, I read your article. I listened to the audio, actually. And... Um, I think you're the perfect guy to give us an update of the microstructure of the list of those common structures Man. that are in that book. I'm going to have to go back and, and find that book and read it. What's really funny, I, I just want to be very transparent about the liquidity cascades research. So where it came from, right, was, was the shock of March 2020, where as an asset manager, I, there was a very clear exogenous shock, which was COVID lockdowns and the impact that would have on the economy from a fundamental growth perspective, uh, shock with, with what the Fed was going to do with interest rates, fiscal and monetary response. There was a lot for the market to digest. But then there were days that were what were very clear to me as endogenous shocks, right? And anyone who's ever operated in the industry for long enough sees those days where they go, that security isn't moving because of some fundamental repricing. Someone's getting tapped on the shoulder and blown out of their position. And at a certain point, during the March 2020 crisis, it felt to me, and this was just, you know, as a quant, the worst thing I can say is I feel, but it felt to <laughs> me like the market was no longer reacting to the exogenous shock. It was all endogenous shocks that it was trying to digest. And so I took a step back and I said, it feels like maybe I'm missing something, that there's, there's a layer of the market, either from a microstructure perspective or a participant perspective that I don't, I'm not giving enough weight to either. I haven't figured out who they are or I've discounted their impact, particularly during these acute crisis periods. Mm. And I was certainly not the first one to look into this stuff. There is a great breadth of research in all these topics. The, the three major narratives I came across was what's the impact of the Fed, right? And I think that can sort of be hand-wavingly said. There's a whole host of people who say, zerp ended up leading to uh, behavior among market participants where they were taking excess risk that causes them to act in a, in a sort of uh, momentum chasing behavior. I'll get into that a little bit. Then there's a whole host of people who say, no, it's passive markets that are distorting everything. The growth of passive investing. Vanguard's great, but we've gone too far. There's no longer active pricing. You tie into that the move from mutual funds to ETFs and the way that market microstructure works and the, and the adoption of passive, maybe that's a risk to markets. And then there's a third group of people who say, well, it's actually neither of those. It's derivatives. It, derivatives have become the tail wagging the dog, either through structured bank products or just the options market itself. 
I think uh, people who paid attention to markets post-2020 heard all about gamma squeezes and that sort of stuff with meme stocks. People are arguing that's been happening at the market level for a decade. And um, again, brilliant people like Mike Green, who were talking about the passive thesis, Chris Cole, Ben Eifert, Jem Carson talking about the derivative thesis, tons of researchers into the Fed impact. I, I don't want to highlight my work without recognizing that it's really just a summary of what all these other brilliant people said. If I contributed anything, it was only to say, well, maybe it's not any of these individually. Maybe they all sort of feed into each other. Maybe the response of market participants to what the Fed is doing is that they have to move up the risk curve. And by moving up the risk curve, they end up moving into more passive base investments and, and there ends up being a lot more crowding and they end up doing things like selling vol to try to harvest yield, which creates a greater impact on derivative usage in the market. And that derivative usage ends up being when there's some sort of exogenous shock because of hedging dynamics ends up being an explosive force uh, that can send the market spiraling out of control. And um, so again, I think my only real contribution was a sort of a meta summary of what everyone else is already saying and, and maybe trying to connect them together that they're not individual narratives, that, that it's probably much more of a spider web than we give it credit for. But uh, happy to talk about any of those finer details, because I think there are some really fascinating things going on at, at each of those levels. Yeah, I mean that was the thing that I I really gleaned from your your article, because it, it was you know it was a more of a micro you're taking one at a time and isolating isolating what these market participants are doing and sometimes they're doing the exact same thing, sometimes they're not doing the, the exact same thing, and you know you could see this in if you just look at a trend follower, the, you you know look at the trend following like ex sector you know, those those managers. You could see like when those things started happening, how it changed their performance record. Right. You know, the follow through versus the mean reversion concept and um, the passive part of it, it really um, has created a lot of cross currents and noise in the marketplace. Yeah. And, you know, my, my friends who are value managers uh, are scratching their heads and, <laughs> you know, and it reminds me, you know, in the dot-com bubble, we had a similar thing, but it was just a little bit different narrative. But the themes are the same. Like, if you actually break it down, like the common symptoms, they're the same. There's just different players and there's different structures involved. I think that's right. I, I think the big fundamental question, and I, and I, I don't mean to make a, a pun here, but the, I think the fundamental question is what drives the market? Fundamentals, or is it and when you look at the history of the stock market, is it just a record of transactions? Prices that people were willing to cross the spread for, for whatever reason, right? And sometimes those reasons are economic and sometimes they're non-economic. And there are certain conditions under which enough players seem to end up in a correlated position that they all get taken out at once. I, I think from a microcosm perspective, you could look at the quant quake of 2007, right? Where you had a ton of long, short equity quant managers who saw massive multi-standard deviation moves day after day after day because they all ended up somehow in a very crowded position. And once an unwind started, it forced all of them to unwind because they were all holding the same positions and, and um, their risk metrics forced them to take the same action, which creates this knock-on effect. To your point, can that thing sort of thing happen at, at a much higher market level? And can it happen across strategies? So if you are 
someone who's implementing a managed future strategy, how sensitive are you to the growth of risk parity strategies? How sensitive are you to the growth of um, structured products or target volatility products that emerged from in the insurance companies post 2008? Well, I would say, how, how is trend following related to you know, a target 5% vol insurance product? Well, you know, at face value, maybe not so correlated, but what you find is their position extremes when they're most levered up and when they're most delevered tends to be pretty correlated because a lot of that, that leverage is going to be tied to just generally what's cross asset volatility like, and you don't tend to see really high bond volatility without really high equity volatility. So if you just look at how high or low is equity volatility, you kind of know what's going on in most markets. And that's going to affect the positioning of risk parity. It's going to affect the position of managed future strategies. It's going to affect the positions of structured products. It's going to affect the position of target volatility products. And all of a sudden, things that shouldn't be related can become much more crowded from a notional leverage perspective and potentially have the risk of all unwinding at the same time if there is an exogenous shock that affects something like equity markets. Yeah, you know, I, I would argue this kind of thing it, it has gotten more uh, intertwined and more complex than it was when I first looked at this concept back in the late 1990s. Um, mainly because technology has sped things up and more quantitative strategies are being implemented. And, you know, people will backtest and look at certain things and then they'll find some um, relationship and then create these structured related products or strategies. And then you get a lot more noise. To me, the end effect is a lot more noise and a lot more exhaust. The two things, short-term noise and secondly, on the tails, a little bit more uh, volatility on the tails. Right. I think there's, so, so I would use the word social gamma here to try to highlight what you're saying. I think this, this works in two ways. One, and we can point to the most recent sort of, I'm going to use air quotes here for people who are just listening, uh, bank runs in the U.S., right? It used to be if you wanted to have a bank run, you needed to get out of your chair, walk downtown, right? <laughs> and ask the teller for your money back. And you know what they could do? They could move as slowly as they wanted to. They could drag out that withdrawal process. You know what it takes to do a bank run today? I load up an app, and unless they've turned the app off, I've got my money out within seconds, right? So you've got this all of a sudden, to your point, that, that digitalization of what used to be a physical action. It is so easy for me to sell shares today. I don't need to call a broker, right? If everyone's trying to call their, you know, 40 years ago, trying to call their broker, and there's only one broker who can take your order, and he's on the phone with someone else, well, guess what? You're not getting your, your order sold. But now you can just log into your account at Schwab or Fidelity or TD, and it's done in seconds. So I think that technologicalization allows people, the social order, to move faster, which is potentially dangerous. I think generally we think of removing frictions as being a good thing. I think sometimes friction in the system can prevent panic from spiraling out of control. So mm. I, I think that sort of social gamma is potentially a dangerous part of, of the new market structure, having nothing to do with market structure, just having to do with the technology effects of everything. Uh, the second part and a little bit tying into your point of, you know, everyone can sort of back test. Everyone's got the data. I think when you look at the consolidation of quant firms, um, particularly on the market maker side, right? Intellectual property, as much as they try to protect it, there's like maybe five major market makers today. And if they're all, if people are sort of 
career hopping, there's a lot of intellectual property bleed that goes between firms. And all of a sudden, they might be running very highly correlated algos that share the same tail dependencies. Not intentionally, but they were reading the same research. Someone hopped from Virtu to Jane. All of a sudden, Virtu's ideas end up somewhere at Jane Street or vice versa. And you end up with these more correlated behaviors. I think from a risk modeling perspective, right? MSCI Barra got really, really popular in the mid-2000s. What happens if every major quant firm starts using MSCI Barra as a risk factor modeling software, and all of a sudden their equity strategies are all trying to normalize to the same risk factor measures? They're going to unintentionally become more correlated. And I think there's some of some of that potentially happening in the market. That that technology and and literally as people move around, the ideas risk becoming more self similar. Yeah, and you can see it in the data. I mean, even even when I wrote this article in the book, I sorry to keep coming back to it because to me this is connecting some dots like like an update. So even even back then, you could see the increasing correlations among the global stocks. You know, going back from seventy two all the way up to nineteen ninety eight. You know, nineteen ninety eight was when I so funny how the publishing John Wiley published this book. Nineteen ninety eight, I was done writing it. It didn't actually get out into the world until two thousand two. Isn't that right? Funny? Right. Yeah. So uh, before the, you know, because I was basically warning that we're going to have some, some, we have a, a crash coming basically. And we did actually, but, um, you know, luckily, you know, call it luck, but it would have been a very uh, different career if you got that out in 1999. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So the world average correlations were, were, were uh, increasing. And I talk a lot about, you know, correlations inside. We were just starting to get enough speed to kind of analyze, you know, analyzing correlation takes a lot of crunching. Right. So, um, you know, now everybody's got it all, right? And I think that I think there's a little bit of unwinding of some of that. And some people are going back to a little more of the qualitative elements because I think the difference between a good quant manager today is going to be how well they are qualitatively uh, assessing what they are doing. Right. So uh, uh, I was talking to uh, a guy that executes our block trades, and he was like, Yeah, well, we're. We're, our algos are fighting the other algos right now, <laughs> you know, so we can get filled. So, and that's the kind of world that we're, we're in. Um, I, I kind of want to break this down a little bit more. So for the, so the listeners can kind of get a flavor for, you know, particular elements and uh, that are happening. Let's start with just the active versus passive element yeah. that you talk about. Can you just dissect that a little bit in terms of what you're seeing with the active versus passive dynamic in terms of flows? Yeah, so I need to give a lot of credit to Mike Green here, who is yep. currently chief strategist at Simplify. He has been a large proponent of this concept. I actually remember it was probably back in 2019 when I first sat down with him and he he was kind enough to spend an hour with me going through a presentation, talking about some of the dynamics he was seeing. And I walked away saying, uh, that man is a complete crackpot. Yeah, and uh, this is insane. And then I, I sort of spent more time thinking about it. And I said, well, maybe it's not as insane as what he's, he's saying. And, and his basic core point, if I could try to, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I'll try to distill it down to a single sentence is buying and selling has an impact on prices, which like, I don't think is necessarily as wild as it sounds, but that actually is is a hotly debated subject among market researchers. Because the idea in an efficient market is that if you are buying and selling for non-fundamental reasons, 
and you move the price, someone else should recognize that the price is wrong and immediately move it back to fair value. And what Mike was proposing was that that wasn't the case and that in the move to passive, there's two really important things going on. The first is that passive investors on average, if you're allocating to a passive fund, hold substantially less cash on average than active managers. So the number he tends to quote is that active managers on average hold about 5% of their portfolio in cash. Whereas today, if you look at a passively managed mutual fund or ETF, it's going to hold mere basis points. So ignoring everything else, let's just say everyone in the world moved from active management to passive management. Well, what that means is there's a significant increase in demand for equities, right? You are now saying there's, there's 5% cash that people no longer want to hold. We want to buy equities for that, the market price to clear, the value of equities has to go up. Yeah. So just in general, the allocation to equities goes higher because they need to be more fully invested for tracking error purposes. Exactly. So, so that makes sense. So overall right. demand goes up. So overall demand goes up. So defensively, you could say, well, why are market valuations higher today than they were 20 years ago? Because on average, people hold less cash than they used to in their allocation. There's higher structural demand for equities, and that leads to a perpetual bid for equities. And maybe one of the reasons you see have seen equities march higher. The other point he made was a lot of people have said passive allocations or passive market weighting is a momentum strategy. And I've always said that doesn't make sense to me because momentum is all about saying I'm buying more today of what went up yesterday and less today of what went down yesterday relative to the market. And by definition, the market is can't be relative to itself, so it can't be a momentum strategy. But what Mike is trying to point out and others are trying to point out is that if I have a dollar of flow every single day, right, money is coming into the Vanguard fund. By definition, if Apple outperforms today and let's say Under Armour underperforms the broad market today, tomorrow the money that goes in, more of that money will be used to buy Apple and less of it will be used to buy Under Armour. Well, what Mike is somewhat proposing is, well, what if we said the flow that came in today was actually creating that effect? So when I go to buy a dollar of the market today, six or seven cents are going into Apple and I don't know, 0.001 cents are going into Under Armour. Mike's argument is, well, what if that six or seven cents is making it so Apple outperforms the market because there's larger structural demand based on the fact it's a larger part of the market and so that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because it then goes on to outperform the market, which means the next day, a larger proportion of that dollar has to go into Apple. And it's not to say that there aren't fundamental impacts and fundamental repricing, but by people moving to passive, this is a structural flow issue that's supporting the mega cap tech names and hurting the smaller cap value names, making it so that value never really truly reprices. Yeah, yeah, that makes it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if market cap is going, market cap is price times your shares outstanding. If price is moving up more, if that you know market cap is going up, you own more. I would argue it's 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 it is momentum, but it's also uh, a lack of selling, right? Because uh, you know the mean reverter, there was more mean reverters on the value side that would 
take money off the table and there's less of them. Yeah. Because uh, if you look at the momentum effect prior to the uh, proliferation of indexing, you had the momentum effect that was in, in play as well. Uh, it would actually worked better. Uh, so, um, well, it, it moves in and out of favor. Well, a know. big, you know, there's a really interesting study that came out a year or two ago relative to the growth of target date funds. And so, again, I'm, I'm not assuming people are watching. They might be listening to this. Uh, I, I'm younger. I'm, I'm in my mid-30s. To me, target date funds were always a thing. I came into this industry in 2007. I didn't realize till I was doing the research that target date funds back in 2002 were a sub $10 billion industry, and they are now a $3.5 trillion industry, right? One argument of low interest rates is that it forced the financialization of the markets, that people were forced to use markets as a retirement vehicle, right? We got rid of defined benefit, defined pension plans. People are putting money in their 401k as a savings vehicle because they couldn't earn anything in, in their um, savings accounts at banks. So they're pouring money into the 401k as a savings vehicle. Well, what this, what this research showed was two really interesting things. One, as there was a proliferation of target date funds, which tend to have a fixed mix on a glide path, but a fixed mix between stocks and bonds that they rebalance between for a totally non-fundamental reason, right? If it's a 60-40 allocation, you are rebalancing back to 60-40 regardless of the fundamentals of stocks versus bonds. They found that uh, markets tended to trend less and mean revert more as target date funds grew. Arguably because, well, what are target date funds going to do when stocks outperform bonds? They're going to sell stocks and buy bonds and vice versa. They are self-reinforcing mean reversion within the market between asset classes. The other really interesting thing that this study showed was that there's a distinct difference between what they call in benchmark and out of benchmark equities. That if um, most of these uh, funds, for example, allocate to the S&P 500, if you are the 501st stock or the 502nd stock that's not included, your behavior is meaningfully different than the 500 that are included around these rebalance periods. Right, this idea of what's actually being traded. There's so much flow uh, in these uh, strategies today, in these target date strategies, that they're arguably having an impact on market pricing, both across assets and cross-sectionally among individual stocks. Yeah, it's really interesting. What, what, what's going through my mind as you're talking is I was thinking about how um, you know benchmark was a hot topic when I was doing the CFA prior to the uh, the dot com bubble. And there was a lot of discussion about that this could happen. And it's happening. It's so funny. Uh, you know, the, the community was aware that this could happen, even just philosophically, right? And now it's actually really happening. Um, the second thing that was going through my mind is that um, it's, le it's leading to a um, irrational behavior such that uh, you wonder how long it could last. Like, at what point do you have a triggering event that changes that. So what reminds me of, what was it? Was it in the 60s? We had the rip-roaring bull market and then we had rising inflation and then and, and really people wanted to be more like passive back then uh, and people were doing the nifty 50 and all that, but just kind of holding. And then we went to a period where like nobody wanted to do that. In fact, people went were kind of anti-indexing or anti uh, going in that direction and going more towards active because of the way the markets were behaving. And it kind of makes me wonder, 
are we going to come through, go through a period like that? Or, or are we past that now? We're more enlightened. What's going to happen? Like you can't, can you, can you perpetually just keep buying and holding? Well, I, I think what's difficult about this is you would think at first, if this is having an impact on markets, that's creating a meaningful valuation discrepancy, right? You have non-economic buyers who are who are putting money to work regardless of cost. They don't care about the cross-sectional relative valuation. Wow, value managers must love this, right? But what we're what are we seeing today? We're seeing valuation spreads at all-time highs, right? Talk about going back to the dot-com era. You look at value versus growth today, it is higher from a valuation spread perspective than it was in the dot-com era, right? Wow, we haven't potentially learned anything. But why isn't it reverting? Well, what if we have too many passive investors that the active investors can no longer influence the market? And so I might say, wow, there's all these great stocks trading at a discount, but they never get repriced upwards. I never get the benefit because no one's coming in behind me to buy them. What's causing them to reprice up if all the money that should have been buying them for me discovering at first is now just going into passive. And it's, it's by being a value stock, it is almost by definition uh, a smaller part of the index from a relative basis. So what I would argue is that if this is true, and the big thing I want to say about all this, by the way, I should have started with this, in the paper, I think I explicitly say this, I'm not telling you what I believe. There's some theories out there. I want to present them all equally. I want to give them all equal air. I don't necessarily have the same degree of confidence in all of these pieces. Or, for example, I might have a high degree of confidence that it might something might have an impact on a micro level, but not a macro level. I'm, I'm trying to not uh, color these theories with my view because I, I think it, it is warrant, it, it warrants review. Everyone should sort of give it their own independent thought. But one of the arguments here is if passive has gone past the tipping point and flow is never going to go back into the value names, value investors aren't going to benefit unless the return that they get is not price appreciation based, right? You would either need to see companies say, wow, this is trading at such a discount, we're going to do huge buybacks, or the dividend yield is really high, or you need to see a return of activist investing, that people are taking companies private again, or doing meaningful buyouts as a way to unlock value. But it's not going to be in share repricing that you would see that value get unlocked. Whether that's right yeah. or not, uh, I don't know. But again, the, the the issue with the tipping point is that unless you get on the wave, you get left behind. I think you're right. I think that is right uh, because ultimately the you know the cash flow is is king, and cash flow will will make other transactions occur despite capital markets, and that will be the 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 big uh, thing that will drive that. Um, you know, it's very interesting because you have this reflexive relationship between the mark the capital markets and and fundamentals too because fundamental fundamentals can also be influenced by the capital markets and vice versa as george soros talks a lot about being in a equilibrium versus a non-equilibrium situation i believe we're in a non-equilibrium situation right now I'll, i i'm okay uh, uh, going out on the limb um it's very interesting what you're talking about um I'm thinking about value managers today who have been underperforming for a long period of time and they're sticking to their knitting. Maybe they'll be vindicated at some point. Uh, and I'm not a staunch value manager, by the way. I'm not, uh, um, I, I always say that uh, 
your value, your valuation analysis is is only as good as when the market begins to recognize it. Otherwise, it's not very valuable at all, actually. Um, so that gap between, and you talk about that gap between the value and valuation and price, which is kind of this whole thing that we're talking about, because valuation is a nebulous thing too. It's also in the eye of the beholder. Absolutely. Um, so, but um, so I want to talk a little bit about. You had mentioned also uh, that there were shorter term players in your paper. You were talking about. The you know all those uh, entities that are that are rapidly trading, right. also known as high frequency traders. What is your take on that, or or what kind of research have you come across that you see in that area? Yeah, so I think there's there's sort of two very interesting players there that potentially they're they're both they're all high frequency traders, but having different impacts on the market. So there there's the group of high frequency traders that are helping facilitate the way funds trade today. So a big evolution in market microstructure is the move from mutual funds to exchange traded funds. And um, this is a huge, in my opinion, huge benefit to investors, especially taxable investors in equities, mm. because ETFs offer this wonderful tax loophole that you can have turnover within the ETF that's, that becomes non-taxable through what are called heartbeat trades. Uh, but what it requires is a very different operating structure. So as an example, if I manage a mutual fund and you want to invest, what happens is you buy a share of the mutual fund and I wake up the next day and there's a there's money in my bank account that I get to put to work. And I go to market and I buy shares with that money in the bank account. And if you want to redeem, you do a redemption request and all of a sudden I have a have some a money I owe and I need to go to market and sell shares and I give send you that money back. Um, how's it work with an ETF? Well, if you want to buy shares of an ETF, you are going to the market. It's trading on an exchange and you are buying those shares from someone who's selling them. Sometimes it's another market participant who might just be trying to sell the shares and you guys match on the exchange and the manager of the ETF is none the wiser. Other times, if you're doing like a large order or um, uh, other participants who are, who are actively trading are going to be uh, market makers who are called authorized participants. And when they build up enough shares or enough demand, what they do is they go to the ETF company and they say, hey, we need some shares. We need to create some shares because people want it so we can sell it to them on the exchange or we need to sell some shares, right? But it's all happening through the market maker. And the way the market maker is managing their business is they're trying to hedge with the underlying stocks. So if you want to buy, what they're doing is they're selling you shares and then they're going out and they're buying all the underlying stocks as a basket to hedge out that, that implicit short position they have of selling you the shares of the ETF. And when they accumulate enough of that basket of stocks, they go to the ETF company and they say, here's all the stocks. Please give us the shares so we can cover our shorts. Right. But they are implicitly trading on leverage, really importantly, and they're doing a, a huge amount of basket trading. That basket trading, one of the things it means is they're trading, right? When I say basket trading, they're, they're buying and selling stocks in big groups, which means you are potentially seeing more correlated behavior of groups of stocks rather than individual pricing of stocks because they're all being bought and sold at once in this basket. It also means that they're very balance sheet dependent, right? The ability for them to operate in this capacity as a key person who is operating on the exchange facilitating trade they are balance sheet dependent uh their ability to make markets is dependent on how much 
uh, exposure they can create at any given time. Today, there's maybe five major market makers down from 15, 20 years ago. And if you go back to March 2020, this was, I think, pretty much lost on, on a rather chaotic market. And I don't blame people for this being lost. But there was a press release from Virtu who said, hey, we're trying to raise a couple hundred million dollars because we're tapped out. Uh, we, we need more money so we can keep making markets because part of the problem is their ability to get leverage is based on their ability to post the securities they own as collateral. And when market volatility goes up and prices go down, that collateral becomes worth less so they can get less leverage, which means they can, can't make markets as well, which means markets have less friction to them. Uh, it's less deep. The, the bid ask spread is wider and all of a sudden things can kind of spiral out of control. And so they actually went to market saying, hey, we need to do a capital raise just so we can keep making markets. And I think this is an example of when you get potentially correlated market players, a huge proportion of securities are trading in just a few firms who day to day do an incredibly efficient job at this, right? But in, in the corner case, in the market crisis, this can lead to some behavior that's potentially very dangerous. We are relying on five major institutions who, by the way, aren't considered like, you know, those, those sacred banks that aren't considered to be special entities. These are just random financial institutions. Your average person has never heard of that are key to the functioning of financial markets. I'm nodding my head right now because that's number two of the common symptoms. A relatively small number of investors or institutions are exposed to a market and they are liquidity providers to the marketplace. So right. th this is just a principle. There's, pr you know, I believe that there are principles of understanding when you have a potential for a big, and you know, it's, it's, oh, they're different players, but understanding the principles of what causes liquidity problems. Um, so, so that's one problem that we have with the ETFs. We also have uh, another part with the ETFs is that you have homogeneity, right? That's the, uh, that, that's another point that's on the list. Whenever you have a homogenous type trade that is, that is done, without regard to cash flows or fundamentals. It, you, you get irrational economic behavior from homogeneity, right. which is what the ETFs are doing. Um, and so I, I, if you, if you kind of add this up, it, I, what would cause, what, one thing in my mind that, and I want to hear your opinion on this, that would cause something to kind of go back to where it should, if you will, if, based on fundamentals, would be that you would have just a, a complete structural risk uh, uh, risk premium shrinkage, if you will. In other words, everybody is less risk taking. That, that, that would, you know, that, that solves the le leverage is obviously, obviously a big part of this, right? So that yeah. delevers, that also basically lowers the exposure to risk assets, including equities. That would cause the, the reverse of that cascade, as you will, right? Is that, what do you think about that? Or do so you have any comments on that? It's possible. Um, again, this is, this is, and this is pure speculation, but I, I sort of wonder if the horse is out of the barn, right? To me, that requires a complete fundamental rethink of 401ks and uh, the qualified default that participants get put into, which is a highly regulated concept, right? But that qualified default is typically a very passive target date fund. Right? You'd have to completely rewrite regulation around that concept and give much more uh, regulatory clearance for 
for the default to not to not be passive, right? Because at this point, if you choose something other than if you make the default something higher cost and active, that's something you have to defend. Which is very like who who what corporation or or plan sponsor wants to defend that versus, you know, you're just low cost passive structure. So I think there there is some parts of this that I don't know if we can turn back without some major regulatory and legal rethink. And there's so much money pouring into the 401ks of the world that it might just be we've hit escape velocity. Right. I, I'm not I'm not sure either. Right? Even if you see a major risk premium shrink, is your average person on the street contributing to their 401k going to change the target date fund they're in? I don't think so. Um, they start losing money. I think they will. Uh, yeah. Case in point, this last if year. If they start losing money, absolutely. Well, they're going to lose money. <laughs> yeah. If you have a, re so, so I guess the, it's like what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Right. Um, you know, and I think uh, it just takes one, one shift and it, it creates the cycle. Right. Um, well, the losing, it, the losing money brings up a really important point, which was in the beginning of the paper, which was talking about the idea that what the Fed has unintentionally done in keeping interest rates really low is they've created a link between the financial market and the real market, right? You talked about what what's the behavior of the average day consumer when their 401k starts to lose money. Well, through the wealth effect, if you believe that people will spend less when they feel less wealthy by having their savings not in cash earning 5%, but by having their savings in a target date fund that can be down 30%, does that cause them suddenly to start spending less, which hurts the earnings of corporations, which causes share prices to go down, which causes them to spend less, which causes the shares to go down, right? And you get this cyclical real world impact of what should have been ideally distinct. You know, I get it's not entirely distinct systems. There's the cost of capital that's important to these corporations, but I'm not sure the intended linkage is directly to the consumer, right? Who's now using the market as a savings vehicle. It forces potentially central banks to intervene more actively to help create that buffer between what the consumer is going to do um, and what the market is doing because of that tight wealth effect link now. No, I think you you bring up a really good point um, in your paper about, like you said, using it as a savings vehicle. You didn't really say it that way that I saw, but it, it's more about people losing sight about like their time horizon. So they'll be using money that they're they're going to maybe spend in the next five years, under five years, and they're putting it in longer dated instruments. And then anytime you have volatility, then that to the downside, then people will immediately like, oh, I still need that money. They they pull money out. Yeah. And, and and you you do see that happening. I think that did actually happen uh, last year during that that little decline, which was was not a huge decline, but it felt like a pretty big one. Well, probably the biggest biggest one people have witnessed in a while, particularly when you get stocks and bonds being correlated. I, I think the the feedback I heard in March 2020, who anyone actively participating in markets, March 2020 was, I mean, every day felt like a year, right? But to your average person who's not, you know, watching markets daily, markets rebounded very quickly. It was an event that was over pretty quickly. If you looked at their quarterly statements, like if you just looked at the end of Q1, yeah. Even by the end of March, things had bounced back pretty pretty significantly. And on a quarter-over-quarter quarter basis, it, it really wasn't a huge deal. Versus last year, I think people started to really see pain in their state. Yeah, because rebalancing into fixed income was led to a, 
I had an economics professor tell me it's almost like when you step on a rake and it pops you in the head and you step on the rake again right. and it pops you in the head. So that, that's kind of what happened because the traditional switch out going into fixed income didn't work because of rising inflation. So that changed the dynamic. So yes, I agree with you 100%. That's very, that, that is kind of, I think, the danger that we're in right now. There's, there, we could go into so many different microstructures. If you had to actually look at all of the different structures that you've outlined in your paper, which would be, say, the top three that you could think actually move the most money and affect investors? And how should we be looking at that? Well, the one we haven't talked about yet that I, I think is big uh, is the impact of the derivatives market, particularly the options market, right? So I mentioned there's two market makers that I think are having a big influence. And I talked about the ETF market makers. I, I actually didn't talk about the second one. And it's the options market makers. Um, and I don't want to make any presumptions about uh, the knowledge of your listeners. So I'll, I'll start really basic here, right? An options contract is a derivative contract. There's two types, a put and a call. Um, if you are buying an option, if you're buying a call option, it gives you the right to buy the shares at a certain strike price at a date in the future. Um, and you're paying a premium for that. A put allows you to sell the shares at a certain price at a, at a date in the future. And there's a counterparty to that. Um, a lot of options are exchange traded. So they are listed derivatives. They're, they're not you know trading OTC with a bank or something like that. So they're, they're, there's a lot of volume there. Um, one of the things we have seen is that options volume has grown considerably over the last decade, um, far beyond just the notional growth of the market itself, right? If you look at the notional volume of derivatives, it should be tried, tied to the volume of the thing it's trading on. Yes, the market went up. Notional volume of options should go up. It went up beyond that. Uh, there was a huge push in the 2010s for what we would call volatility risk premium strategies. As institutions tried to find ways to eke out extra yield in a low interest rate environment, one of the things that they would do is they would sell call options, right? So this might be familiar to some of your listeners under the idea of like a covered call strategy. You buy the market, you sell a call option, and selling the call option a little bit out of the money, a little bit of priced above where the market's trading, you're basically going to earn a premium and you're saying, I'm, I'm hoping the market doesn't trade above that so I don't have to give up any upside. But if it gives up some upside, I'm covered. I own the underlying. I can deliver the underlying. I'm, I'm totally hedged. What's important to realize here is, is that the trader on the opposite side of the options trade is typically not another trader. Like if I go to buy an option, uh, it's not like you're on the other side most of the time. It, it's an options dealer, a professional market maker. And when I go to buy an option, let's say I'm selling a call, uh, what is important to me? Well, I, I, I'm maybe placing an explicit bet. The dealer on the other side doesn't want to take the other side of the bet from me, right? They are just trying to capture the bid-ask spread. They're, they're pricing, they're offering the option at a certain price. They're hoping I cross the bid-ask spread, so I'm doing something below or above fair value, depending on the direction of the trade, and they just want to lock that in. So what they're going to do is they're going to hedge their position. So let's do, let's again, walk through a really simple example. And I, I do apologize. This is a, it's hard to say it's simple because it is a little complex, but I think it's really important. If I sell a call and you're the dealer on the other side and you buy it. Um, so you are now uh, long a call option, right? 
What you need to do is every time the market goes up, that call option is going to go up in value. To hedge your position, you need to short. And every time the market goes down, that call option is going down in value. You need to buy back some of your short. Okay, so what I, what's really happening is I've expressed actually sort of a short view of the market when I sell my call, and I'm passing on that view to you, the dealer, and you are going into the market and you're buying and selling. Every time the market goes up, you're selling a little bit. Every time the market goes down, you're buying a little bit. Well, what happens if this is happening in mass? Institutions around the world adopt this strategy, and all of a sudden they're all selling call options, and all of these dealers who are making markets on the other side, every time the market goes up, they're selling a little. And every time the market goes down, they're buying a little. Well, that has the risk to massively depress volatility, right? Particularly right. because options offer leverage. Um, that, that the amount of notional exposure that those dealers have to buy and sell is really big relative to the size of the option. So, so you might end up in a market regime like 2017, where you have some of the lowest realized volatility ever, and markets are getting pinned to certain levels where there's a significant amount of option, dealer option exposure. Let's consider the other side of that trade. Um, what people do besides selling calls is a lot of people will buy puts for protection, right? If the market goes down and I have a put, it's kind of like buying insurance. Well, if the dealer's on the other side of that trade, and they're now short a put to hedge that, when the market goes down, they need to sell more of the market. And when the market goes up, they need to buy. So if the opposite side of the trade of the selling the call is sort of this convergent behavior, right? They're, they're selling against the market move. With the put side of the equation, they're actually they're chasing markets. So one of the things we can think about is people tend to sell calls a little bit out of the money close to where the market is, and they buy puts pretty far away from the market. So let's say we're going into March 2020. This behavior around selling the calls is forcing the dealers. Every time the market goes up, they sell a little. Every time the market goes down, they buy a little. Depressing realized volatility. Let's talk about, we'll remind you that those all that means all those managed futures players, risk parity players, target volatility strategies are now more over levered because realized volatility is lower. And then all of a sudden there's an exogenous shock and the market sells off and the market is no longer near where those calls are trading. They're now down at the puts, which means the dealers went from hedging the calls. So now they need to hedge the puts. And every mm -hmm. time the market goes down, they need to sell more. And when every time the market, they sell more, it drives the market down further, which means they need to sell more at the same time. So that's, that's volatility inducing behavior. They're pushing the market in the same direction it's moving increasing the realized vol, which is going to cause the, the managed futures players to delever, the risk parity players to delever, the, the structured products players to delever, the target vol players to delever, driving the market in the same direction. And then, so you get these wild day-to-day -day swings where as the market drops, everyone's forced to sell. And then the market rallies the next day. All those hedgers uh, of the options need to buy back. Happening arguably at the market level, and then we heard a lot about this at the individual stock level, right? Um, meme stocks, gamma squeezes, what people were trying to orchestrate in mass on Reddit was buying options, call options to force the dealers to have to buy the underlying with a huge amount of leverage to drive the price up. 
um, what was happening at the individual stock level, there are people saying this is exactly what's happening at the market level. No longer are derivatives being priced based upon what's happening in the market. What's happening in derivatives is actually moving the market. It's the tail wagging the dog. Yeah, so if I can summarize, if I get this right, so within a band, there's mean reversion behavior. And once bands are, are uh, broken, then you have very rapid uh, accelerations to trend following type behavior. That's absolutely right. And, and it's very, that's a very simplified, naive view. Obviously, the market's much I, more complex. I, but I know. I'm just trying to kind of give a general sense because a lot, some people may not, may not be able to follow that like you and I can. But I want to, you know, in terms of kind of bottom line it a little bit to where what can happen. And you see that where you, you have this mean reversion type behavior, like it doesn't make sense with what the way the VIX is behaving or, or the way securities are behaving. Um, and then you have all of a sudden a kind of a light switch is turned on or off and people get lulled into taking on more leverage. And that's what, and that leads, leads us to this whole concept of vol volatility targeting. You have, you know, a lot of the insurance companies doing some volatility targeting. They do it a certain way. A lot of the managed futures people, uh, use vol, vol targeting, um, in various capacities. Some are like daily vol targeting. Some are just having some constraint to not get outside of certain volatility targets. A lot, of, a lot of these managers are these institutional managers want a vol target because it's easier to sell the products. What do you think the? I guess my question would be, what do you think the risks are that some of these vol targeting strategies could like really not blow up, but not deliver as promised? These vol targeting strategies, and you're and you're right, they there are they tend to be institutional. I think the argument is right. What I often see the the, the slide in the pitch deck is. You can either have a constant allocation or you can have a constant risk level, right? You look at a 60-40, it's a constant allocation, but the volatility of a 60-40 changes dramatically over mm -hmm. time. If you look at a target volatility strategy, the allocation itself will have to change dramatically, but in theory, you're getting a constant risk level. What causes something like this to blow up? I think if there's zero expectation of any sort of correlation between returns and volatility, um, it's not a big deal, right? Uh, if you if you say or future returns, excuse me, in volatility, I see, I see, right? So if I if I if volatility goes up and markets are just as likely to go up as they are down, me shrinking my allocation doesn't really matter. What you find in equity markets, though, is actually. Um, there seems to be a minor edge in volatility targeting because, uh, just like trend following when you, when markets start to be volatile, it tends to be a higher likelihood of having a, a down markets in the future. You tend to have a correlation between volatility and negative future returns. So there's a little bit of actually an edge in vol targeting in equity markets historically, whether that continues to be true. Uh, we'll see. That's not necessarily the case in other markets, right? Uh, things like commodity markets have a history of crashing up, not necessarily crashing down. Bond markets can crash both ways, depending upon whether it's, you know, an inflation trade or a flight to safety trade, right? So there's no clear correlation about future returns and, and um, current volatility levels or, or less, much, much less meaningful correlation. There's also this really interesting paper. One of the fundamental ideas of modern finance is that sharp ratios are leverage invariant. 
Um, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, what what did what did Markowitz say to do? What what did uh, Will Sharp say to do? They said plot the efficient frontier, find the max sharp portfolio, and then lever it to your target risk level. What this paper showed is that if there is any covariance between volatility and future returns, that it's going to be a drag on the returns of the portfolio because you're constantly rebalancing. That actually, rather than leveraging it to the target volatility level and changing that volatility, um, empirically, you would be better at just choosing a target leverage level of that strategy because all that rebalancing, again, the relationship between current volatility and future returns, if there's any sort of covariance there, it ends up being a drag on your realized results. So uh, that's a very long answer to, and probably overly technical answer to your question, right? I think Jerry Parker would like your, your, your description there. Yeah, I mean, oh, overly technical again. So, so let's let's rewind. In the minutia, right? Target vol, like there's this very interesting relationship between real, current realized volatility and future returns that can't be ignored. If your target vol, a target volatility strategy, it isn't just like oh, you get the target risk for free. That's not how it works. You need to be aware. At the macro level, I think one of the things to consider, and, and we've been dancing around it on this podcast a little, is how many other people are doing this. And how many of them are ending up in the same crowded position? And that's the point, really. And that is a huge point because it's it's not just um, yeah, we mentioned a couple of them. It's 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 the managed futures people, it's the risk parity people, it's the insurance products that are target vol, it's the structured products, but even people like long short equity managers, right, are going to potentially be affected by overall market volatility levels depending on the beta that they run. Some of them will be beta neutral. Some of them may not be. As, as market vol picks up, they're going to have target risk levels that they might have to start you know, buying back some of their shorts and selling some of their longs to bring their, their gross leverage down. And so there's a lot of players in the market that maybe aren't directly measuring risk as what's the realized vol of the S&P 500, but it's a pretty darn good dirty proxy for them having to cut risk. And once yeah. everyone starts adding risk or cutting risk at the same time, you know, that's how you get this convergent behavior that can start to drive markets. Yeah, yeah. Well, there uh, there used to be a lot of players that ran their models more in a discrete fashion where their signal strengths would be discrete like, you know, plus 1 minus 1, uh, more uh, or zero. <laughs> But more managers are using continuous signaling, so that so they're doing it over time, and then and you'll see certain volatility relationships. You're starting to see it more and more right now. Um, when I'm when I'm listening to you, I have like a hundred ideas firing through my brain of what I want to, you know, ideas which we don't have complete time for to to talk about. But the volatility thing is, I think it it definitely is an issue. A lot of people, a lot of institutions have done a lot of back testing on how to forecast volatility and they're finding that generally it's it's a phenomenon of you know that that you can more accurately forecast near-term volatility by using near-term volatility and then having some mean reversing long-term number uh, just in case they get too far out of whack and and most most quants will tend to look at volatility and forecast volatility with that methodology and then there are some that will use fundamental uh, um, 
factors to also put on top of that that will that incorporate that in and but but if you look at it and i you know i talked to lots of different people it's it's like they're all still kind of doing the same thing yeah which which makes me and we've kind of lost some of the kind of the basics you know i hate this you know because i i'm not i've been accused of being a quant i'm definitely not as quant as you are um but i feel sometimes that there's it's like we have to understand the the beauty of quant and also the dark side of quant <laughs> well i talk about the dark side of quant oh being a quant doesn't doesn't preclude me from having fundamental friends right um yes. And one of the, the trends I've noticed among my fundamental friends is an increasing awareness within their positions of who the owners are, right? Because, because they have to say to their positions like, okay, uh, I need to recognize that this large quant firm is actually uh, one of the owners today, but their signals are based on X, Y, Z, and they own some percentage of the freestanding float. And if those signals change, they're going to be a big seller and that's going to have a big negative price impact, you know, and, and I might actually expect them to sell soon. So let me wait to accumulate shares. Like the, the awareness of quant players, what signals they're using and how, and how that affects what's going to be the opportunity for set for you as a fundamental manager, I don't think can go overlooked. The other thing I've heard time and time again from folks I know who work at pod shops, right? So like a, your millenniums of the world where you have these long, short fundamental value managers or fundamental managers, not necessarily value, is that they do a lot of work at the aggregate level to filter out a lot of the quant factors that these managers are actually incredibly good at finding securities with alpha, but th that alpha tends to be polluted and diluted by unintended quant factor bets. And so the they they use these quant methodologies as as the positions bubble to the top to try to find the bets the manager isn't trying to take and hedge them out to more purely isolate mm. the alpha of that manager. So again, I, I don't think these this isn't these aren't competing forces. Uh, I think quant we have to absolutely be aware of, but I think uh, very savvy fundamental managers are starting to look at quant and say, oh, there's there's things we can try to take advantage of and be aware of, as well as tools we can use to sharpen the edge in which we're trying to, to extract alpha from the market. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think being aware of both and, and using both to your advantage is, is really important. Um, you know, quantitative analysis as well as, you know, your qualitative fundamental work you know, and diversification. It's just almost like if you diversify just on a, on a correlation number, you know, um, not understanding the fundamental drivers of revenue and expenses, for example, in equities would be wrong. I mean, it would be, you, you're going to be more, you're going to be wrong more often. Let's put it that way. You'll be right a lot, but you'll be wrong a lot too. Right. A lot more often than you need to be. Right. Um, so it's very, it's very interesting. All these different things. I want to circle back a little bit to regulations. You know, you can look at it from different angles there's a lot of regulations that are kind of getting the entire investment industry to be more passive, like you pointed out. And in fact, even I would argue, even the, the government kind of wants us to do that. Right. I mean, if you're a government employee, what, what does your 401k look like? It's not a 401k, but whatever you call the plan TSP, what's in it. Yeah. It's all passive. Um, it's, I had, uh, I was, a, I did an ex a speaking engagement in uh, LA. I was talking to a bunch of quant people. And um, one of the guys came up to me and said, you know what, this is, this is socialization of returns, is what he said. 
Mm. And you used the word socialization, but he was talking about a different type of socialization um, where we're, we're kind of, uh, you know, many uh, investment advisors are kind of funneled into a certain way of providing advice, the 60-40, the keep the costs low, broad diversification, own everything. You know, it becomes more and more of that. You know, you have to do a risk profile. Look at the SEC regulations. You have to do certain things a certain way. And then from a business perspective, operationally, they wind up providing advice that's homogenous, right? I mean, if you look at the advice from all, you pick the institution, wealth management institution, you look at it, it's almost the same, no matter where you go. They're beginning forced more and more and more into that. And um, I, uh, there's a side of me that just absolutely despises that. <laughs> and that's one of the, another reason why I wanted to bring you on, because I have a sense that you you kind of don't want to be in that box and that you're working outside of that box with some of the things that you've done. Um, tell me a little bit about what you're doing in that world where you're able to work within the regulations today and to create products that are that can help, let's put it that way. Yeah, let me start by saying I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for the role financial advisors are trying to play because I think they have to straddle this, this very difficult hurdle of information asymmetry with their clients, right? Uh, which creates behavioral issues. So they might know a lot more about markets than their clients. What is comfortable for a client? Behaviorally, they understand stocks. They might understand bonds. A 60-40 feels good. And then the advisors are dealing potentially with this worst case competitive behavior among other advisors where they're all selling performance against each other. So in a decade where the 60 US 6040 is the best thing out there, they are all sort of forced to converge into a US 6040. Then they're dealing with regulatory pressure that's starting to say anything that's high cost, you need to have, you know, written policies on and defend. There was a proposed DOJ ruling that didn't even come into effect, but what was it 2014 around there? Basically absolutely killed uh, the, the mutual fund C share class, good riddance, should be gone. Um, but, but forced a lot of the advisors I work with to say, hold on, I'm not buying anything active. I'm, I'm moving more passive um, because that is safe. The way the law seemed to be written, uh, and again, it didn't go into effect, but it still had a profound impact, was you were safe in the market. You were safe in low cost. You were safe in passive. If you did anything different, you had to defend it. And so I, I don't want to say like advisors are doing anything wrong here. That's the last message I want to send. I think they're, right. they're trying that to- wasn't my message either, yeah. And I didn't think it was. I just really want to clarify. Um, what, what I'm trying to do, uh, so at my firm, Newfound Research, one of the things we're really focused on is acknowledging that just first and foremost, diversification is good. We talk about diversification being the only free lunch in the markets. The only reason I care about alternatives is because they help introduce diversification into an investor's portfolio. If you are more well diversified, it means two things, in my opinion. First, it means the cone of uncertainty with which your wealth is going to grow diminishes, right? If you have one asset that has an expected return of 8% and a vol of 16%, you know, you've got a pretty wide cone of potential wealth outcomes after 20 years. You add in a second asset that's got an expected return of 8%, a vol of 16%, but their correlation is zero. Well, now your vault of the portfolio drops to like 12. That cone of uncertainty decreases. 
You add in a third asset, same thing, uncorrelated. Well, now it drops to like nine and a half. Again, like the free lunch here, in my opinion, is that you get to maintain the same expected return on a linear basis, but that cone of uncertainty from a financial planning perspective decreases dramatically. And for most people, that's what they care about. They care about what's the certainty with which they can achieve those financial plans, whether it's saving for children's education or buying a home or paying off a home or retiring or some trip they want to take, right? Those, those things are important. Subtle math nuance is that because of the way compounding works, while your linear expected return is the same in all cases, your compound expected return actually goes up for the more diversified case. You get less of the volatility drag. The basic intuition here is, you know, if you lose 50% of your wealth, it takes a 100% return to get back to break even. If you have a more diversified portfolio, you have a lower probability of seeing that bigger drawdown versus a less diversified portfolio. So full stop, diversification is good, helps us achieve our outcomes. That is to me the only reason we should care about alternatives. And that's why I do care about alternatives. And at my firm, we try to help investors introduce alternatives into their portfolio. The big problem we face is, again, this, this game of telephone where we as an asset manager are working with advisors who then have to communicate with individuals. And in a year like the, in a decade like the 2010s, where US stocks and bonds were the only game in town, trying to get someone to allocate to an underperforming alternative that is higher cost, likely higher taxes, less transparent, harder to understand. You had to sell stocks and bonds to buy. So there's a funding problem where you have an opportunity cost to it is really hard. Cliff Asnes uh, was on Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz a couple of weeks ago. And I think he said it beautifully, which is like, as market researchers, a decade is in statistical time is a blip, but in behavioral time, it's an eternity, uh -huh. yeah. right? Yeah. Asking your client to stick with a strategy that's got a sharp of, of 0.3, you know, like any, any strategy, any asset class with a sharp of 0.3 is going to have an underperforming decade. They can, they can handle it with stocks. They can probably handle it with bonds. Handling it with managed futures or some <laughs> equity long short strategy whose sole source of P&L comes from a trading strategy is a lot harder for them to have that in, intrinsic faith it requires to hold on. Yeah, you're also not following the herd. If everybody around you is losing money, you yeah. know, it, it hurts more if you're you're losing money or or treading water more more, more likely when other people are making, that's always hard uh, until, until they actually see that it worked really great. And then there's this, you know, people will want to get back into it at that time, but you know, it's kind of the, 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 the train left in the short term, you yeah. know, left the station. So, but I, I'm hearing what you're saying and that's very so, true. So what do we, what do we try to do about it? Right. So let me round, round this out really quickly. Institutions, the way they've tried to solve this for decades is, is something called portable alpha, which mm -hmm. is, they recognize in many cases, it's very hard to find alpha in something like picking the best stocks in the S&P 500. But there might be some alpha in alternative investment strategies. So what they do is they say, instead of, um, if we have a 60-40, instead of allocating 60% to all these active stock pickers, we're going to use some cash to buy equity futures or swaps with a bank. And instead of allocating 60% of our money to get 
60% exposure, we might only have to allocate 10% of our money. And that 10% serves as cash collateral for this derivative exposure that gives me all the return of equity markets, but I've got this implicit leverage. So I get the full 60% notional exposure, but I only have to use 10% of my money. Now I can take that 50% that's left over and allocate it somewhere else. And they might put it in some sort of alpha strategy. And this idea is called portable alpha. It's basically, let me manage a derivatives program that can give me my beta and use my cash to allocate to alpha managers. Unfortunately, not really something that's easily done at, at the RIA level, right? RIAs aren't going to be allowed to manage complex derivatives, uh, nor do they want to. It's not a good use of their time, realistically. It's going to be confusing for investors. For all sorts of reasons, it's not going to happen. And that, that gets to the regular, regulatory point that I was you know, bringing up. Yeah, a lot of it is also regulatory that, that keep those constraints. Yeah, but going, definitely at like the broker dealer level, compliance is certainly not going to do it. An individual RIA might be able to get away with it, but they're only going to be able to do it for their high net worth and ultra high net worth investors who can then allocate to hedge funds. Um, so what can we do today? Well, the way uh, the way derivatives law, well, I don't want to say law, regulatory environment was in the past. It was very confusing as to how much leverage you were allowed to have in a mutual fund or an ETF. It was unclear for decades as to um, how long, you know, in a long short strategy, how long and how short could you be? It was unclear if you were running a managed future strategy, how many turns of leverage could you use? Mm -hmm. Rewind to last year, two years ago, uh, there's a new rule that got proposed called the 18F4 derivatives rule, which very clearly laid out what you are allowed to do in a mutual fund or an ETF with respect to derivative usage. Uh, it is based upon risk. You'll appreciate this. It's, it's actually based upon a 20-day uh, VAR. So your portfolio uh, has, there's two potential rules, what's called a, a relative rule and an absolute rule. The relative rule says, pick a benchmark, your 20-day 99% VAR cannot ever exceed twice the benchmark's 20-day 99% VAR. Or the absolute rule says your 20-day 99% VAR can never exceed 20%. Well, that gives you a lot of leeway to try to figure out how much leverage you can use and opens up the potential for us to use leverage potentially in a more interesting way. So what we've started to bring to, to market is what we're calling return stacked products. With the core idea being what, again, going back to this idea of portable alpha, what these uh, institutions were doing was effectively replicating beta with derivatives and then allocating to alpha sources. And that's exactly what we're trying to do within an ETF or mutual fund wrapper. For example, you give us a dollar, we might give you a dollar of bond exposure as well as a dollar of managed futures exposure. And so the idea is if you're a 60-40 investor, you could sell some of your bonds by our fund. The fund will replicate the bond exposure you already had. And the new managed futures exposure is effectively an overlay on top of your portfolio. Uh, and so it, it allows RIAs and individuals to begin to get access to this very institutional concept without having to manage any of the complex derivatives themselves. And, and you're doing them in ETFs mostly? ETFs and mutual funds, yep. And mutual funds, okay. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and so, uh, yeah, I have not done any looking at any of your ETFs. 
I did see one mutual fund, I think it was through another company, Resolve, something like that. Yeah. So we, um, we wrote this paper called Return Stacking back in, I think it's the first time I ever wrote a paper that it was published before a good market period for me. So November, uh, September 2021. And the whole idea was, look, there are now enough funds either available through my firm or Resolve is another asset manager I, I co-authored the paper with. PIMCO actually offers a bunch of funds in this space. Wisdom Tree has an ETF in this space. We said we can actually use these ETFs in combination to create what we call the 60-40-30-30 portfolio. So 60% stocks, 40% bonds, 30% systematic trend following, and 30% systematic macro strategies. The idea being, when you look at a 60-40, its core risk is inflationary sensitivity. So what we wanted to do was overlay that 60-40 with strategies that we thought would do well during an inflationary environment, things like managed futures and, and systematic macro strategies. Uh, we, we published the paper September 21, ended up having a model portfolio of funds and ETFs that people could track started publishing the live track record for that shortly thereafter. And, you know, first time in my life, you, you come out of the gate with a concept and actually the next year it does phenomenally well. Nice. Um, and it was a great, it was a great proving strategy of, you know, again, just because you're stacking returns doesn't mean you're necessarily stacking risk by thoughtfully choosing something like managed futures and systematic macro, which tend to have more absolute return profiles when you, when they're combined, but tend to do particularly well during those conditional events where stocks and bonds do poorly. It was really a, a ballast to the portfolio during a tough year for a traditional stock and bond portfolio. So again, we think like, the core goal of return stacking is yes, it has the potential to enhance long-term returns. Yes, it has the potential to, to enhance the internal diversification of a portfolio. But we think first and foremost for advisors is it helps introduce alternatives in a behaviorally palatable way for their clients. Yeah, and I, that makes a lot of sense. I uh, recently inter interviewed Eric Crittenden, I think you may know. Yes, who, who and, and we fund. used his fund and do use his fund in the model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's a, a good guy. I I, uh, I I know Tom Basso, who's also involved with him, um, known him for quite a while. And um, I, I like what he's doing. I mean, this is the kind of stuff I do in my proprietary account. It's very difficult to do for clients. Yes. So I think it's a very positive step forward for individual investors um, who maybe don't have $10 million. And, uh, you know, managed futures is a beautiful thing. It is an absolute beautiful thing. I hate the word, the term managed futures, but um, having that ability to go long and short stocks, bonds, commodities, currencies, in many different strategies, mean reversion, uh, trend following, short term, intermediate term, all that, it just adds a lot of value to a portfolio. Um, uh, from a diversification, absolute return perspective. Um, and I think that's really needed in today's type of environment for a lot of people. Now, last year, we saw, you know, big returns last year in that type of uh, approach. Um, you know, I, I was lucky that in the early 90s, I got introduced to it. And um, and then I, I worked as a, I worked for a hedge fund uh, coding strategies, doing doing that those types of strategies. And back then, we used to have to call the floor to... Uh, you know, you wanted to trade the S and P's. We called the floor, right? The internet was just coming out. We used satellites. <laughs> I'm dating myself, <laughs> uh, but uh, I think it's great that this is happening finally. That the, I think having some clarity with the regulations is really good. Yeah, and um, and it should help the RA industry as they catch on to it. 
Um, and also some of the um, broker dealers and stuff are going to have to buy into it. And I'm sure they probably are now, hopefully. I don't know. I'm not in that world. Yeah, it's, it's, nope. it's a tough one, though, because a lot of the levered products that came to market initially were, you know, your two and three times levered ETFs. And there's a, there's a host of reasons why people might want to avoid those. And they were largely right. banned, blanket banned from most broker dealers and um, large, in, you know, the independent broker dealers like LPL and, and your Raymond James. So when you start to have a conversation about, well, well, yes, there's leverage in this ETF, but we think it's thoughtfully levered, right? You're not just taking three times the risk of the S&P. We're, we're combining bonds and managed futures, for example, to help in people overlay in, in a capital efficient manner to this alternative strategy. It's a bit more of a nuanced discussion. Uh, I think we're getting there. I think the market is coming around to it. I think this phrase return stacking uh, is much more, uh, I'll, pat, I'll pat ourselves on the back. I didn't come up with the term. My co-author Rodrigo Gordillo did. So I'll pat oh, him on nice. the back. Much better than portable alpha, right? You say to someone, we're, it's a portable alpha strategy. What in the world does that mean? What is return stacking? We're stacking returns on each other. I think that's a lot more like intuitive and understandable. People understand if they both go down at the same time, that's worse. If they both go up at the same time, it's better. Hopefully they're zigging and zagging at different times. And over yeah, the long and run, using the term overlay doesn't work either. No. For, for Capital efficiency, leverage, overlay, portable yeah. alpha, derivative. We don't want any of those. Yeah. And 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 yeah, you really have to differentiate because you know, if you're not educated and you think that you know, just because you're using some leverage, that it's the same thing as having an inverse. Uh, you know, S&P, which has, you know, compounding problems with how it's, you know, you know, structured, you know, that's the, that's the thing. It's nothing like that at all. Exactly. Uh, you know, because for just because the way it's structured, um, you're not targeting a daily uh, beta number or daily return number times two or right. something like that. Well, and it goes back to that, that variance drain problem we talked about, right? The benefit of diversification, if we think about compound growth, your compound expected return is basically equal to your linear expected return minus your variance, you know, divided by two. Well, the more diversified you are, the lower that variance number. But if you are, you're very, uh, if you are, let's say three times the S and P, well, that minus the variance term, which is your variance drag or your vol drain. You might've heard those terms. Well, your, your variance is now nine times the variance of the S and P. Uh, when you're three times levered versus if you're combining, say, bonds and managed futures, if they've got zero correlation, well, that variance term can actually go down. You can end up with a higher geometric return, compound expected return, because, again, you're reducing that volatility drag. So I just think from a, from a, from a pure fundamental perspective, yeah, what we're doing may seem a little bit complicated, but I, I just like to go back to that core narrative of like diversification is good. We should do everything we can to try to get as much diversification in our portfolio in as palatable a way as we can so we can stick with it the longest because that's what's going to really allow us to unlock those compounding benefits over time. So normally when I do a podcast, I usually start off with tell me about yourself, where did you grow up and all this stuff. We didn't do that. <laughs> we, we, we got in the deep end quick. And I'll tell you, I wanted to do that right away, but I'm also curious so where did you grow up and how the heck did you get into this crazy business? I will tell you, it was a complete mistake. So I'll give you the very, I'll try to give the abbreviated version. I grew up um, in a small town in Massachusetts, was very fortunate that I had parents who um, were supportive of any endeavor. Uh, if they, they had a policy, which was if I read a book, they'd buy me a book. 
Like no questions right. asked. Didn't I couldn't, it wasn't for video games, but if I, if I was interested in something, as long as I read the book and at a very young age, ended up getting into teaching myself how to code. I think I was 12 when I first started learning to teach myself how to code thought for sure I'd create video games for a living, ended up going to college for computer science, hated my classmates. Uh, mm. realized this is not what I wanted to do for a living. Nerds. <laughs> yeah. Transferred out, um, ended up, ended up still getting a computer science degree, but, uh, I ended up transferring to Cornell university where a lot of my peers were at that time. It was all about going to work on wall street. They were all wanted to be investment bankers. This was like 2005, 2006. Mm -hmm. I got really into the quant thing. And so I ended up going to Carnegie Mellon's computational finance program, their master's degree nice. right out of undergrad. Um, it was both fortunate and unfortunate timing. So I graduated right during the financial crisis. I remember spring 2009 during our commencement speech, uh, the, one of the speakers celebrating that we had like a 30% placement rate into jobs. And I remember thinking mm. to myself, like, if you go to an Ivy League school and you're celebrating a 30% placement rate <laughs> into jobs in this environment, like this is, this is bleak. But I was, I was fortunate. I went right into this grad program, which was all about at the time, it was like one of the, uh, it was actually the first financial engineering program in the country. There's a number of really good ones. They called it computational finance. It's a cross-disciplinary degree between statistics, mathematics, computer science, and finance. At the time, it was all about pricing derivatives, very stochastic calculus heavy. Everyone wanted to get to the course on pricing credit default swaps. We all assumed we were going to go work on a sales and trading desk on Wall Street as quants and, you know, do, do all these fun credit default swap trades that uh, while we were in school, the banks got completely dismantled, right? Mm. So that, 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 and all the interesting prop trade, prop desks also like got jettisoned from the banks. So it's funny looking at the curriculum now, it's much more buy side focused than sell side. It's a lot more machine learning focused. Like the stuff I learned has much less to do with the curriculum. But um, I was, I was lucky I ended up doing an internship in my last years of undergrad where I was working on really some tactical ETF models for myself, ended up getting introduced to a local asset manager who liked the idea. They were basically trend following signals on equity sectors. The idea was to give a portfolio the ability to pivot to cash holding ETF. So it was this interesting like dynamic ETF portfolio and he licensed the uh, signals from me, like the trend following signals. Uh, I, I was like a broke college student at the time. And he offered me what he what were called BIPs. I don't know if you've heard of BIPs. I had never heard of BIPs. I was like, sure, man, as long as I get a check in the mail. Well, yeah. You know, next <laughs> thing I, Oops, yeah, what I, I've never, I don't know what this BIP thing is you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> next thing I know I'm in grad school and he's raised over a billion dollars. And, Whoa. um, and I saw at the time, like there was a real appetite for tactical strategies. And I was young and arrogant and said, I got cash flow. Why don't I try to go build this business? Um, sometimes it's like the arrogance of youth that allows you to go like, who, who in the world is going to go listen to a 22 year old? But, you know, uh, I was I got lucky. I had the cash flow. I said, worst case scenario, I'll go end up working at a bank. Um, and and I. So I had named originally Newfound Research. I, I created the company back in 2008. We're about to hit our 15-year anniversary. I named it after a, a lake in New Hampshire, Newfound Lake, because I, I didn't expect the company to ever stick around. Um, you know, It was like this company that I expected to be shut down in a year. 
I was thinking that it was like inspired by like we found this new gem, you know. I wish you know, it was like it was newfound because it was a lake I grew up on and research because we were selling research. And then over time we pivoted into a more traditional asset manager. And we, you know, today we we manage mutual funds and ETFs and indices for different ETF providers and uh, publish a lot of quantitative research. So it's it's changed dramatically over time, but it was really just it was born as an accident. And I, I feel bad because sometimes I'll have young quants ask me, you know, it seems like you've you figured it out. How'd you launch your own career? I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, this is my career path is not something you can aspire to because it was a complete accident. Um, you know, our, uh, I run a wealth management company now, so I'm not really doing managing money on the institutional side. Um, it's a different animal. And one of the things I was telling uh, Eric and Tom Basso is the hard thing is that you have all these tools that you know you want to do and implement for people, but you can't do that. So you're, you're doing that now. And that's good. Um, uh, you have to kind of see how that all pans its way out. Um, yeah. I, I actually uh, mentioned this to somebody one time. It's like it's easier for you to buy a small cap fund with a vol of 25% and stick it into and, and invest for a a client, a high net worth client, than it is for you to actually do something that's a diversifier, that's diversified systematic trend that will actually dr drop the, the volatility and improve the, the sharp ratio over time. That's wrong. And this, uh, that regulate regulations is, it is, a big, it is big problem. And, and I'll, and I'll start by saying, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on the show. It's been great chatting. I am absolutely going to run out to Amazon. Hopefully I can find a copy of that, that book and, and order it so I can go at the very least read, read the chapter, the prescient chapter that you wrote. But I, I guess what, I, what I'll end on is, you know, as I get further in my career and I'm hoping I'm less than halfway, but I, I feel very um, fortunate to be in the position I'm in that I can start to think about launching. I've always wanted to launch the products that I'd want to invest in. That's always been a, a core tenet, but to really say, you know, if I only had my own products to launch in, to, to invest, it used to be, I, I had, I managed one product, but if I can launch a suite, 10 products, and that's the only thing I could build a portfolio out of, can I build my ideal portfolio, right? The Vanguard three fund boglehead concept. Can I launch the three return stacked ETFs that give me the full flexibility to buy and hold my own money in the way I want. And, and to me, I think that's a, that's a real dream opportunity. And, Hopefully I can unlock it for myself. And then, you know, if, if I can get advisors to dabble a little bit into it, I don't expect them to go as heavy into leverage as I would, but you know, I think a little bit of it can go a long way in unlocking the benefits of diversification. Yeah. Yeah. Leverages can be a good thing. Uh, it's so funny. I was telling Wes, Wes, you know, Wes Gray. I don't know if you know Wes. Yeah. Gray. Oh yeah. Very well. I said, Hey, I said, Wes, I said, you know what? Um, I like, I like 40% in trend following uh portfolio but there's no way in hell my clients will do it right and he says well that's what i do but i'm crazy <laughs> wes 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 is one of the best people to have on a podcast i sounds like i'll have to listen to your episode with him because he has some of the greatest phrases and and his phrase brain damage i by the way i used to have a wes gray i used to do so many conferences with him i brought a wes gray bingo card that i made to one of the conferences because he has all these like very specific wes phrases like and one of them is brain damage, and he's got a dozen others. But I would sit there in the audience and I'd be like, yeah, heard that one. Yeah, heard that one. But yeah, I love that's that. a good one. He gets it. He really does get it because he is incredibly sophisticated. But he recognizes that the stuff he will do or you will do or I will do is not appropriate for the vast majority of people for whom they just can't get comfortable. And, and 
right? The, um, the ideal portfolio is first and foremost, the one that you can stick with. If they can't stick with it, they're never going to get the benefit. Yeah, true. I, I, one time I had him come speak uh, at an event here in Denver and I had just had knee surgery. My banged up my knee. And the first thing he does is pretends that he's going to like not kick my knee really hard. <laughs> it was, it was a total Marine move, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you want to wait? He just, he just had surgery on his knee. So you got to go to Puerto Rico and go Ooh. do the same for him. I'll do the same thing for him. Yeah. Yeah. But that's good. Um, well, I'll have to have him come back on again too. So anyways, great talking to you. We'll keep in touch. Thank you so much. Sure. Appreciate the opportunity. For the latest episode of The Market Call Show, make sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Go to marketcallshow.com for all our past episodes and sign up to get alerts for new episodes. If you enjoyed the content of this episode, please leave us a five-star review and comments. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.
I really enjoyed talking to you. It's great to hear your story. You're, you're doing some good stuff. And I wish you the best in what you're doing. Maybe we'll you know, talk again later.